This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Marcus Miller. Marcus Miller is one of the lead organizers on the Block Power Team. He uses his experience as a creative problem solver and effective communicator to influence strategy and advance progressive change. From his work to end homelessness and to support and mentor youth from low-income families, he's a firm believer in the power of dialogue and the right to vote. Block Power is a nonprofit focused on uplifting Black voices by engaging new and infrequent Black voters in the electoral process. Their strategy enlists tech-based initiatives, including a software platform that makes grassroots get-out-the-vote efforts more efficient, effective, and data-driven. They've partnered with the New Georgia Project, Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, or Block in Milwaukee, and the Color of Change in Florida, and they're supporting efforts in North Carolina, Arizona, and other states to invest directly in Black communities and amplify Black voices. In the 2020 election, they mobilized more than 200,000 voters, many in critical swing states. Hi, Marcus. Hi. So, Marcus, I'm going to date this podcast by mentioning that we are recording on Thursday. It is November 5th. That is two days after the 2020 election, or two days after, I should say, we started counting um, the 2020 election. Who knows when the 2020 election will be over. As of this moment, though, Vice President and Senator Kamala Harris have taken a lead as the votes are being counted and paced Donald Trump. It seems to be leading toward a Biden presidency starting in January. How are you feeling? Anxious and yet encouraged, encouraged. Just seeing the number of folks that have come out and seeing that just Biden as a candidate alone is pulling in like record-breaking numbers as far as individual votes goes. I'm just feeling encouraged that people are out there exercising or exercised their right to vote. That's the encouraged part. Why the anxious part? Oh my goodness. If you're not anxious... <laughs> just the the watching and the waiting and so i've been trying to avoid it so it doesn't just consume every moment of existence over these next few days so i just try to check in once or twice twice a day to see how the counting is going and see if there are any updates two questions what are you doing to keep yourself sane and what are you doing to stop yourself from checking things more frequently well working out because that just zens me out so that's really helpful and just stress relief and angst relief and then i have not been checking social media as frequently as often because i feel as though that then transitions into okay well let me just go down this rabbit hole and look at all these different scenarios of what if he wins he wins what if they do and so i'm just trying to step away from social media and just get out and be outside. You know, I teach uh, science fiction. I'm a literary scholar. And 
I have noticed that I tend to dwell in imaginary or possible worlds and think about, you know, gaming what if scenarios. And it's just been, I think, the lesson of a lifetime for me to to live in this world and take the facts as they come and live in the reality of the facts. Uh, something that I hope more of us can can do uh, in, in the next four years. Um, but as of this moment, we are two days out of the election. What, what was that first day of the election like for you going into it, in the middle of it, and on your way out of it? The election day is my birthday. So every few years, I am overwhelmed with whatever's happening in the world. And I have to step outside of myself, which is both a good and a bad thing, right? Woke up to a bunch of birthday texts. So that was nice. And then we needed to get up and running pretty quick, like that morning to set up for volunteers to be come, to come in and, and help phone bank that day and, and reach out to potential voters. There really wasn't any time to think or reflect. It was mostly go time. This was the day we've, we've been preparing for, right? We had erected this infrastructure. So it was time to just to jump in and, and act. And so that's sort of how the day started. What were some key pivot points, if you could think back to that day? By midday, oh my gosh, we were so overjoyed. Well, I was overjoyed, I have to say, by how many folks volunteered and dialed in to phone bank and reach out to voters, whether it was right after they had voted, whether they were at a polling place and helping. People just wanted to be able to do something in those last moments to ensure that everyone was exercising the right to vote. And so I was completely just overcome with joy because although we knew we would have people coming in, we, we didn't expect sort of the overwhelming amount of support that we would have on on election day. What, what did that support look like? Oh my gosh. So. Block Power, because we're so new, we rely heavily on volunteers. So we had so many volunteers that came out to, to help phone bank and people dialing in from California, from Houston, from Florida, from DC, from New York, just Wisconsin, from all over. And then we have folks on the tech side because we're not in this world of traditional grassroots organizing we had to rely so heavily on technology. So then you have people that are in front house and, and back end development. And so just people offering up their time and their services on all fronts and extraordinary amounts of time, no little bits of time, right? Every little bit counts, but what people were willing to offer and give just created a moment that I don't think I'll ever be able to recreate in my life. It was just so incredible to be a part of that that day. And that was just two days ago. I'm talking about it like it was years ago. It was just two days ago. <laughs> so walk me through the end of that day for you. I mean, this is the morning when you're energized and excited and all the volunteers are coming through. And, and then we get to four o'clock, 4.30, and the polls are starting to close on, on the West Coast as well as the East Coast. How did the day end for you? We did a quick text campaign because since we had so many volunteers reaching out via phone or calling folks, we realized that with, while the polls were closing, there was a good 45 to 30 minutes left. So we did a quick campaign and, and sent a bunch of text messages out to get people to the polls and offered a, a free lift code to help 
for anyone who wasn't able to, to secure a ride prior to that moment. And then it sort of shifted into, well, we're coming to the point where we've done all that we can do. And so the focus then turned to, well, what do we do with this incredible community that we've garnered over these past few weeks and over these past few hours in just a stay? And so then our focus sort of shifted to, well, let's see if we can pull this community together and just debrief and have a moment with one another before we all disperse and, and go into our various own personal networks and communities and plans for, for watching or bringing in the election. I, I was totally blown away by that moment of community there. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about the element of, of grassroots organizing that may have changed or grown or, or mutated in the age of tech. But I want to just focus on a few important concepts before we go there. The first is, you know, in one of Block Power's videos, Janisha Ray begins her get out the vote call by citing the fact that the 2020 election falls on the 150th anniversary of the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment, for our listeners, granted African-American men the right to vote and was adopted into the U.S. Constitution in 1870. It states that the right of citizens in the United States, I'm quoting here, to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous conditions of servitude. Does that raise the stakes or the symbolism of this election for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially for marginalized communities, but specifically Black people, the fight and the sacrifices to get to a point where we were able to vote or allow to participate in the electoral process in and of itself is symbolic, right? And now 150 years later, you have disenfranchisement, which seems at another all-time high. And so while our focus has been engaging Black voters, we're not just doing that. We're fighting against a system or systems that have been erected to discourage folks from exercising their right to vote. And so that work, while worthwhile, it's, it's challenging. So many times while we were talking to people, you had folks saying, well, what even is the point? My vote doesn't count, which is almost essentially saying my voice doesn't count. And so that programming that has been done, trying to undo that and, and talk through that and encouraging people and empowering folks to exercise that, that right to vote is pretty powerful. And then one of the organizers, Carolyn, who you may or may not have met that, that day, we had a, a good conversation and just, it's symbolic to me, right? But Carolyn can remember poll taxes on her parents and how important it was for them to instill in her civic duty and using her voice and making sure that she voted whenever she had that opportunity. And so even in just the different generations, this is a, a powerful moment and a symbolic moment, thinking about that 15th Amendment. What do you tell folks when they say, my voice, my voice doesn't matter, my vote doesn't count? What do you say? Well, after my heart breaks a little, you just really just talk through that. Why? Why doesn't it matter? And a lot of times people are, are focused on the here and now. We're working specifically with low propensity voters. So 
infrequent or new or folks who just don't vote at all. And sometimes in these communities, these folks are thinking about their next meal, the next paycheck, how they're going to take care of their kids, how they're going to keep the lights on. And so you don't really have the privilege to think long-term about how your vote or the representatives that are being elected fit into that puzzle, how your vote can actually effectively make life a little bit more equitable or a little bit more equal for you. You simply only have the capacity to think about the next 24 hours. And so drawing those dots and helping people make those connections, and that generally starts with talking about local elections and what's happening locally, because that's pretty powerful too. We get caught up in sort of the national, the national side of things, but local elections are super powerful in how people live and how people are afforded resources to live. I mean, this is really interesting, especially given that this election, as you mentioned, had the highest turnout of any election. What what do you attribute that to? And are you excited about that? That is really exciting and super energizing. We're talking about this symbolism, right, of the 15th Amendment. I think that this is a symbolic election. You have these so much at the forefront right now. There's a global pandemic happening. There's a racial pandemic happening in the U.S. specifically. And so there's just a lot on the line. And it's energizing to see people people waking up. In 2016, I, people felt disenfranchised and unempowered and unenthused. And so it's so great to see people connecting to what's happening and mobilizing one another and uniting to to actually get to the polls and, and participate in, in this election. Maybe we should step back for a second. I want to ask, how, how did you get involved in voter engagement? What was motivating you? It, for me, started back in 2016. It was interesting to see so many people voting against their own best interests. And that phenomenon just sort of struck me. You, you ask yourself, why? You hear people saying, even back then, healthcare, affordable healthcare, access to healthcare was, was top of mind for folks back then and so important. And yet you had people voting for folks who were going to strike down Obamacare, affordable healthcare, right? And it's like, well, and that's just based on ideology. Like Obamacare, Obamacare is bad, but affordable healthcare, now that's good. Right. <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> and, right, right. And so you're like, wow. And so really for me, then it was like, okay, I see what's happening. Whoever controls the narrative has the power. And so that actually led me into my master's program. In 2018, I did a, a master's program at Columbia in strategic communication. I actually just finished that. Oh, Thank congratulations. you. <laughs> and so the whole goal was trying to figure out strategies and techniques to encourage people to vote in their own best interest. And so working through that program, I was able to get involved locally in DC. And then this opportunity came my way. And I just, in talking about helping people vote in their 
own self-interest, the first thing that you have to do is get people to commit to vote in the first place. So it just seemed like a natural aligning of, of values and interests to, to get engaged with Black Power. And we actually connected really recently on uh, what what I think we, we all know as Marcus's birthday or whatever, <laughs> smaller population, <laughs> the smaller population knows as election day. Uh, you know, tomato, tomato. <laughs> uh, and you were, you, were, <laughs> you were one of the major uh, leadership figures and the pivotal activists in the Black Power voting movement. And, and there's a lot to get into here. And eventually, I want to tie this to the stakes of both ethics and technology. But but first, maybe we can start with that name, Block Power. Where does it come from? You just talked about you know kind of trying to develop a narrative, um, and and I kind of wanted to know what what narrative lies behind that name, and what values are embedded in that name. So Block Power originally started as an on the ground grassroots organizing movement. So this was previous elections, folks being able to, to canvas and, and go door to door and mobilizing friends and family and neighbors on the block. This was in the before times. Yes, this was pre-2020, right? So this is people like pulling together folks in their neighborhoods and coming together to exercise their power. So that is where the name block power came from. This was really in-person mobilizing in a very grassroots type of way. And so because of that, sort of the values that have come from that and stayed with us even in this sort of virtual or, or digital dependence world of the pandemic, you have values like community, inclusivity, self-sacrifice, because you're always having to put yourself out there to mobilize friends and family, and that, and that really takes a lot. And, and civic duty, because we're really asking you to, to participate in the political process and get engaged in, in your community in ways that maybe you haven't before. And so that's really what the origins of the name come from. And so it's interesting, because now that we're in 2020, uh, COVID, and so We've had to rely a lot more on technology and integrating technology to really, really keep that focus of grassroots organizing. And so it's been really a learning curve for all of us. What were some of those learning curve challenges that you face as an organizer and the leader in the movement? And were there challenges that were unique to this year? Obviously, uh, this is a year where we can't do the traditional kinds of things that we, we do, canvassing, knocking on doors, having that kind of um, block cohesion. What, what, what was new this year? especially addressing this fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Not being able to canvas and, and knock on doors, that is a huge barrier because really what we're trying to do is engage Black voters by leveraging personal networks. And so also we're hyper-focused on safety and health and it was really difficult to help people expand their reach without the ability to go two doors down and, and knock and, and talk to folks because we just didn't feel comfortable sending people out there and sort of endorsing that. Instead, we had to rely on people's knowledge of the folks in their neighborhood and hoping they'd be able to 
remember, oh, Miss Dorothy, three doors down, and I think her number might be, or wait, the folks from my church, did I get their cell phone numbers? And so really, you're relying on technology and memorization, but we all know how easy it is to engage folks and sort of solicit enthusiasm and participation when you can speak to people in person. And so not being able to do that posed a huge barrier. And what technology allowed us to do was sort of scour voting records and public voting files and political databases and try to identify groups and, and, and U.S. Census data and trying to identify low propensity voters, right? So who is registered to vote but didn't vote in 2000, the 2016 presidential election? Or who maybe voted in 2016 but didn't vote in 2018 for house seats and things of that nature? Really trying to figure out and identify who these potential low propensity voters can be or are, and then presenting that information to our micro-organizers, who we call voting ambassadors, and really just telling them, please just scour this list. And it wasn't a free-for-all. We were able to have people enter their address information and pull the, the folks who were closest to them. I think we use like a six mile radius. So these 100 names are the people who are geographically located closest to you. Do you recognize any of these names? If so, will you reach out to these people and talk to them about the importance of voting and ask them or encourage them to remind three other people and to log all of that via, via our database and our application. So technology really allowed us to do a lot. I think the one thing that Block Power introduced to vote tripling, which is something that folks have been doing for a couple of years now, both on the Democratic and Republican side and a lot of other organizations focused on getting out the vote, is we introduced this notion of compensation. So we compensated our micro-organizers to help get out the vote. And so really here, the goal was not just engaging Black voters, but also investing back into communities of color. Do you mind saying a, a few words about what that compensation looked like? That, that model of compensation sort of changed throughout the program as we sort of learned best practices and figured out what worked. And there were all kinds of laws and regulations for the different states that we were activating voters in. So and maybe Wisconsin you had to become an employee of Block Power. And in North Carolina, you could get paid up to a certain limit. So basically what we're doing is for every, every person, a micro-organizer or a voting ambassador could commit to reminding three friends, we would compensate them a certain amount of money. And I believe it was up to a maximum of 16 what we call vote triplers so 16 folks that you are encouraging to remind three friends or family members so each micro organizer in theory could represent about 48 to 49 votes and be compensated for that and then if any of your friends or family also wanted to become a micro organizer or a voting ambassador then we would compensate you for that as well you get them involved in the program. And so it's, it was really important because in talking about folks who don't vote or who infrequently vote or who are new to voting, like we said, 
we're talking short-term goals. What, what I need to do to survive within the next 24 hours. And generally that does not include voting. And so being able to say, well, can we provide some sort of compensation? Can we help in some small way in that area and still have you go out and mobilize, take maybe a little, a little stress off your mind or in some way provide some support that's meaningful for you as a person? This is us recognizing that we're trying to meet people where they are in this digital space. Our voting ambassadors are what I believe others would consider micro organizers. And so these are really the folks who are, that we're connecting with in sort of some of these key states like North Carolina, Florida, Wisconsin, Arizona, Alabama, Kentucky, Ohio, I believe these were all the places in which Watt Power was activating voters. And so we were connecting with folks to become voting ambassadors. And this just really means folks who were going to reach out to friends, family, and neighbors. These are folks who are going to identify, mobilize, and empower low propensity voters and really recruit folks to vote triple or and vote tripling is just when one person reminds three other people or encourages three other people to vote. And because we knew we couldn't canvas, because we knew we weren't big enough to have someone in every single state in which we were trying to activate voters, these voting ambassadors became the lifeline really to the block power model. And it was important to engage folks within these communities that were there actually living in these communities because the research shows that the most effective voter turnout technique is person-to-person -person contact. And generally, if there's a personal connection, right? It's more powerful than television ads, it's more powerful than radio, and it's more powerful than social media. Now you can use all of that, <laughs> but really it's the most powerful technique. I want to get into the digital space in a second, but you used a couple of key terms here that I want to highlight and maybe uh, flesh out before we move forward. The first is voting ambassador. What is a voting ambassador and why are voting ambassadors so pivotal first? And then second, I'm really interested in this idea of social connections as the basis of your strategy for getting the vote out. First, if you could define that term and maybe maybe connect it to this idea, because I think it is very deeply entwined with the core philosophy of Block Power, which is outreach through social connections. What, what does that offer? That is a fantastic question. It comes down to, to trust. And why? What, what, what do you think is the logic behind that? What's your theory? This isn't someone who's trying to get one over on me. This is a brother. This is a cousin. This is a, a mother. This is a friend. This is a, a community activist. This is someone who I can trust. And if they are taking the time to talk to me about how important this is, I better key in. I should, I should listen. Maybe this actually really is important. And maybe my voice does matter. Maybe there's something more to this than just deciding between a lesser of two evils. 
I think it's really crucial to acknowledge that on your website, you say that the Black voter turnout rate declined for the first time in 20 years in 2016. Why do you think that that was the case in 2016? And, and while we're still waiting for the final counts, the final results of this current election, do you see changes on the way? 2016 was such an interesting year. We found more than 3 million eligible Black voters in, in key states didn't exercise their right to vote. And what's interesting about that, right, is that the presidential election was decided by less than that margin, which which lets us know off top that Black votes have the potential to swing elections and reshape the political landscape. And thinking through this, if you can if you can engage these voters in in sort of the political process and mobilize these three million, these three more than three million voters. Yeah, I can say this. I can say this. If you're able to do this, the Democratic Party then can't take black votes for granted. You can't just put up a candidate and say, well, what's the alternative for this for this group? They have to vote for us. And then if you can get this group to participate in the process, Republicans can't disenfranchise them and neglect this group, right? Because they're going to vote for the folks who are representing their best interests, which wouldn't be candidates who are trying to disenfranchise voters from marginalized communities. And so what you saw in 2016 is, I think, extreme versions of those sides. You saw a party that was kind of neglecting this voter because they just took them for granted. And then you saw a party that was going to shut down this vote at all costs and try to ignore this group. And people remember that. And so in 2020, you've got so many groups out there that are working to, to get out the vote and reaching out to different demographics to do so and really snapping people back into this process and saying, hey, if you don't wanna be overlooked, you're gonna have to participate this time around. And even without that encouragement, people are like, something's got to give and what do I have to do to make a difference? And it's like, oh, I guess I'll, I'll get some folks to go to the polls. <laughs> There's a follow-up question that I have here, um, and, and that has to do with a question I'm hesitant to ask uh -oh. because as a scholar, I know, no, I, as a scholar, I know that prediction is the lowest form of scholarship and prognostication is the lowest form of journalism, but I wanted to ask it anyway. Where do you see things going? And, and we're in a very fraught moment where we don't even know the out outcome of this election, never mind the input for the next election. Where do you see 2024? And maybe where, where do you hope to see 2024? In 2024, I hope to see a lot more voters representing marginalized communities engaging in local elections and turning out the vote locally and maybe right not even turning out the vote maybe it's better to say engaging however they can i don't know if this means you have a lot more women and folks from the lgbtqia plus community running 
receipts. I don't know if that means you have more candidates from the Muslim or the Black community running the behind the scenes, running, being the faces of, of policies, advocating for different legislation. My hope, though, is that those that are marginalized will be leading the movements of the future. I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, because this year I saw that not only were you working with Block Power pretty significantly and doing incredible work getting out the vote, but that you were partnered with multiple other groups, including Color of Change, Headcount, the New Georgia Project, Register to Vote. And, and all of these groups seem to have similar goals in increasing voter registration and participation. Why are these groups so important to maintaining a democracy in this country? And more specifically, why do you think that having a specific voting movement for the Black community is so crucial? Getting out the vote, it's so important. I mean, just take Black power. We are focused on engaging Black voters, but more specifically, those low propensity Black voters, right? And one of the things about low propensity voters is they oftentimes get left out of political campaign data. And because of that, they aren't engaged in the political process. So this is a case of folks not taking an action because nobody's asking them to take this action. It, and then that gets put in a feedback loop. So on and so forth. And so it's really great to be working alongside these other groups who are hyper-focused on different target audiences that aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. And so we're able to focus on our different groups, but then we're able to sort of oversaturate that message or overexpose that, that message of voting. And to be honest, we had sort of joked about this behind closed doors. It's like, we're okay with making someone a little pissed off about our outreach efforts as far as how often we're, we're reaching out or communicating if it means we're going to annoy them to the point that they're going to go to the polls, right? Because that really is the goal, is to is to make sure that you're engaging in the democratic process. And so get out the vote efforts, make sure that we remain a democracy, because if people start not to exercise their right to vote, that sends a message that we don't care to participate. And there are others who are more than willing to capitalize and exploit that unwillingness of others to engage in the political process. I wonder to switch gears here and maybe go back to some of the stuff that you mentioned earlier, talking about grassroots organizing in the age of tech. I wonder if you could talk us through what outreach looked like in this digital age. What worked? And, and were there things that surprised you by working perhaps more effectively than the traditional tactics of canvassing? Was it all kind of like prosthetics to get you somewhere close to where a normal non-pandemic, non-entirely digital form of grassroots organizing would look like? Or were there things that actually really ended up working maybe even better? If so, what were they? We tried. I mean, man, Deb, we tried to, to make it as similar <laughs> as we could to what it would look like prior to a global pandemic running rampant through, through the world. And in some cases, we failed at that. And then in some cases, we excelled. One of the things that for us didn't work at first, but we, we kept at it, was 
presenting our microorganizers with that that list of folks that were were geographically located near them that I call it a voting role for lack of a better term but that list of a hundred names of these are the people that are closest to you that was a, a lurky process just because you'd have folks that are like I don't know any of these names like are these supposed to be my neighbors? I don't know my neighbors. and Which is sort of the cons of a digital world is that sometimes we don't have to engage with it in the world around us, right? I have the option of self-isolating and being totally fine with doing that and not ever having to meet my neighbor. And so for us, that was like a, a, like a light bulb oh crap, we're in a digital world, so folks may not know their neighbors, and what do we do in that case? And so we had to modify those lists, we had to open up those lists so people can then search the entire database of every state that we were engaging in, and folks in Florida could be like, oh, I know this person in Georgia, can I reach out to them? Absolutely, because really the goal is just to get out the vote. And so if you know someone in Georgia or you know someone in Arizona, we absolutely would be thrilled if you would reach out to them and, and get out the vote. So that was one of the things that was limiting. In the same breath, that ended up saving our asses because when we shifted out of focusing on the ambassador program, which is that program that was compensating microorganizers to, to recruit vote triplers. And we shifted into the get out the vote and we were just calling people to, to remind them to vote or making sure that they had a plan or a way to get to the polls. The ability to link that exchange back to that microorganizer or that personal contact. Hey, Marcus, Deb told me that she talked to you about voting, and so I'm just following up to make sure you have a plan or a way to get to the polls. It made all the difference in the world versus doing a dry call, right? And just saying, hi, I'm with this organization. Will you please go, go vote? Not saying one is more effective than the other, but one certainly generates or fosters a different reception than the other. <laughs> oh, man. Once the uh, pandemic ends, do you think that voter mobilization is going back to the tried and true tactics of canvassing in person, knocking on doors, candidates eating hot dogs at country fairs, or are some of the tech strategies of these kinds of more distant connections that you outlined um, that we came to because we had to enlist them in the middle, I say the middle, I don't know whether we're in the middle, maybe we're at the beginning um, of a pandemic, are, are, they, are they sticking around? Definitely this, I hesitate to say reliance, but we'll say this integration of technology in the political sphere is not going to go anywhere, right? You saw Obama relying heavily on a digital strategy that was some arguably effective. And then you saw Trump pick up a digital strategy that was also very effective, unconventional by every every. Uh, stretch of the imagination, but incredibly effective. And so it's funny that those who are engaging folks and participating in the political process or in the democratic process are sort of catching up to the candidates who had the foresight 
to leverage technology in the way that they did. And so I actually think you're still going to see grassroots organizations catching up and figuring out how to leverage technology in such a way to fill in those gaps. And so you'll never, we're definitely going to have to go back to some of that, that personal face-to-face when the world allows it, because that's so, so effective. And for a candidate, for uh, a political organization, for an advocacy group, that that person-to-person face-to-face contact is, is so effective. But we're definitely going to continue to supplement with, with technology and the digital tools that are at our, our disposal. It might be eating a hot dog virtually. I don't know how exciting that is. But. I'm a vegetarian, so I don't even eat virtual hot dogs. I'm a pescatarian, so I'm like, I don't know. Apparently, it's a very effective campaign strategy. <laughs> but this is, a, this is, of course, you know, a, uh, a podcast about ethics and technology. I wonder if you could talk more specifically about what role tech played in your strategy. I mean, this, I think, is so incredibly important. It's not just amassing data. It's also trying to figure out what kind of story the data tells. And, and that is an incredibly important skill. You know, as a, a narrative scholar, it's one that I think about all the time. I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about the, the technical side and, and, and the technologists and the work that they're doing. Because in your call to volunteers, you said that you would need developers with Neo or J, Node.js, and or React skills to help you continue enhancing and refining your open source platform. In addition to these kinds of narrative technologists who can help interpret data, and I would imagine a number and a large variety of different roles. I think that it's very important to highlight this point in the context of our conversation because I think it opens up the scope of our definition of ethical technology. As we talked about before we started taping, I teach courses on the topic of ethical technology and I teach a high number of students who represent what I think of as the next generation of technologists. My hope is that they grow toward a vision of using their skills to make sure that tech represents the best of our human values. And we often talk about ethical technology, at least in in the conversations that I have, in what draws people into wanting to talk about ethical technology for the most part, in terms of the ethical dimensions of technological products and technological culture itself. But I think that this call to volunteers that I saw on your website expands the image of what ethical technology might look like. What role can technologists play in this dimension of ethical technology? And how can the next generation of technologists and I hope humanists help in black representation, especially in the digital economy? Technology was everything for for black power because we had to construct a essentially a virtual get out the vote model. And that wasn't necessarily the how Black Power started. Black Power started from being on the ground. And so for 2020, it had to turn into a virtual, a virtual model. Because of that, everything, everything relied on technology. And so before where you probably would have focused more on the organizing, some of the organizing components and where your organizers might have been leading that strategy exclusively, then we were having front-end and back-end developers, webmasters, 
digital media strategists that played crucial roles in, in how we operated and what our strategy looked like. One of the more difficult things that we're still working through and learning from is it's really easy to accumulate data. It's a lot harder to figure out how to extract and manipulate that data. And that is something that we have experimented with from the beginning, and we probably still haven't quite figured it out just yet, but it has, we've learned a lot and how we extract data and the data that we extract has changed over the past four to six weeks and however long Black Power has been around trying to activate voters. I'll start with the call for volunteers. That such an interesting just process and model that we at Black Power have because we're so new. We live off of the skills and the generosity of our volunteers. And so in creating the Block Power app, we were having regular, what we call hackathons every Saturday up until just last Saturday, but we might've had an additional one. There were several iterations of the app itself, several instances of the app as we were sort of learning how people, how our micro-organizers were going in and using it as we were sort of hearing what their pain points were, as we were also learning what some of the pain points were for the, for the organization and trying to reconcile. We needed folks who knew these, these languages who could develop software and even if you couldn't, who could who could experiment and, and be okay with sort of rapid testing and getting involved and jumping in and breaking something and building it back up and then breaking it again and building it back up. And so it really was an exercise in creative problem solving on the technology front. In fact, I wish I knew a little bit more about technology so that I could participate in some of that because that is... That is really cool. And that is one side of the Block Power community that just really came through and the rapport that those folks had and what they were able to do for our micro organizers and to help get out the vote was, I mean, it was, it's incredible. It's incredible. This is the first time really we've seen this. Can you give us some examples? One of the things is definitely the list, how we were able to work around the list and open up that list for everyone in these different states. And we're able to go back through sort of these different sources of data and find more low propensity voters to try to make more complete listings for our micro-organizers. And so, whereas I believe October 9th or October 10th, we were probably still around reaching out to about uh, engaging like 5,000 5, people. And then once that hackathon happened and people were able to revise the app by October 11th, October 12th, we were engaging about 50,000 people. And then boom, we were able to engage another 20, 30,000 people. And so 
just keying in on what was happening on the organizing side just allowed those volunteers who were engaging on the technology side to, to make some huge advancements. Another thing is, and I won't spend too much time on this, but just in dealing with what could be perceived as fraudulent behavior. So we had to figure out if people were putting in data that seemed fraudulent or could be perceived as fraudulent because they were really trying to game the system or was it because we weren't educating folks, we weren't doing our part in educating people on how to use the system. And so reconciling sort of the communication piece versus the user experience piece or the user interface piece. And so, I mean, it just was crazy to be able to bring a problem and say like, uh-oh, this might be an issue and then 24 to 48 hours later it was like okay here's here's what we're going to give you as a potential solution or here's what we're suggesting and and watching people play with that and experiment with that and then saying okay now let's focus on the next problem but yeah there were there were some issues and some things that came up that through the the grace and generosity of volunteers we were able to tackle head on and so one might ask well why would people be dedicating all of this time why would someone come to a hackathon every saturday to try to help get out the vote amongst black voters or why would someone be trying to build this application or figuring out how to process payments that was another thing payment processing because we're talking about low propensity voters and we're talking about sometimes impoverished communities folks don't have bank accounts and so okay, well, we're not gonna turn you away because the goal is to, to make sure that you and your friends and family in the community are voting. So then it becomes incumbent upon us to help reconcile that issue, right? And so these were the things that technology allowed and helped us to tackle. Now, going back to why people were doing this, like <laughs> when you're talking about what does it mean to be human in the age of tech? And that sort of, the question that you're able to address through this podcast and through your course. And I think for Black Power, what we're doing is figuring out how do we make the political process more accessible and equitable for, for low propensity Black voters. And so technology really helped us to, to, fill in, to fill in that gap. And I think that thinking about tomorrow and the next generation of technologists and uh, humanity workers, humanists, it is ensuring equitability and, and inclusivity and making sure we're not leaving folks behind in, in the process. So uh, I am sadly a humanist. And because of that, I didn't quite have the aptitude to add up the numbers that you mentioned in my head. But I can, in my some quick calculations, it seems like you were able to activate what sounds like over in my mathematical limited mathematical abilities accounted for over 100,000 voters. And, and that's amazing. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how you did that. What do you think led to the success of that? What, what about your strategy works? There were a couple things that I believe worked in this model. First, uh, compensation 
incentivizing the community that we're trying to to engage and support them in that way was helpful right i believe some folks and rightfully so perceive this as a scam it's like hey get out the vote and we're gonna give you money what and then once people started participating and being compensated and actually talking to people about voting I think that really changed the game for us. So there were a couple couple weeks there when we were first starting out that it was it was a little dead, right? Because people didn't people were incredulous of the process. Then that tripling effect really helped spread the program. And so what was happening is that our voting ambassadors were recruiting vote triplers to remind three friends and when they were doing that, they realized, well, this isn't so bad. Can I get compensated to do this? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We don't see why not. And so then we started bringing in more people as micro organizers and, and voting ambassadors. And then you had these folks that they were reaching out to like, okay, well, maybe voting is important. And maybe I should talk to some people. So it was that the compensation, that tripling effect, and then the personal networks that really, really, really helped this program grow exponentially within a very, very short time frame. I think on the website we have listed something near 150,000 folks that we were able to activate, but we think now that it's closer to something like 200,000 200, voters we were able to activate, and we'll be able to check in the next few days through the data and through the public voting files to see really how far Black Power's reach was and the impact that we potentially had on, on this election cycle. Talk to me a little bit about what a volunteer uh, calling the day before, the day of, would have seen if that volunteer was, was going to go and, and call folks to get out the vote. Well, I would say if I had to describe it in one word, chaos. You would have seen chaos when you came in, was frantically calling and reaching <laughs> out and Google Meets and, and text messages. But <laughs> what the system that we had in place was, well, first off, as people were coming in, you could sign up and we used a platform called, called Mobilize where you could sign up for your shifts. And what that did is it pinged the organizers and let us know, hey, Deb is coming in from two to four today. To, to phone bank, if we caught that before two o'clock, we would send out a link to a, a recorded, a pre-recorded orientation, a link to our call sheet, and a link to a phone script that you could use. That orientation really just outlined, if you didn't catch the pre-recorded version, then you could come into, a, it was an all day really Google Meet that we just had live with myself in one of my partners in crime, Carolyn, who's also an organizer. You could pop in and get that orientation at any point throughout the day, 
or if you had any questions about phone banking or the block power model, you could pop in and ask us questions and, and we were there to support folks. But basically that orientation just sort of went over the origins of block power, the model and vote tripling program that we had implemented and then the phone banking process. And so our call sheet that we were giving people access had a lot of information on it, right? It first off, it identified who out of our volunteers and our organizers was going to be contacting which person. And so the cool thing about that is because we're in this world of collaborative software we were all working from the same sheet. So it wasn't like this person got this, this person got this. It was sort of this team where you could see who was working on what and we were all working within that same Google sheet together. So we identified who was gonna be calling who, who you were calling or who you were reaching out to. So that vote tripler or that low propensity voter, their telephone number, then you got to see the micro organizer or the voting ambassador who brought them in. So if Deb originally talked to Marcus about reaching out to three other people, it listed Deb's name as the voting ambassador, Marcus, Marcus as that low propensity voter, and then it listed the three folks, John, Jacob, and Ronald that I, had committed to reminding to getting out the vote too. And so what that did was allowed you to, to call and say, hey, Marcus, I'm working with Deb. And she said she had reached out to you about voting. And so I'm just circling back and, and making sure that you're able to get out to the polls today, and that you have a right or you have a plan. And if I told you I already voted, great. You could mark that on the sheet if the person had voted or not what kind of voting they did, if they did early voting, absentee, or if they were voting on that day, the response that you got. So, you know, there were some folks who hung up. You'll always have that in phone banking. There were some wrong numbers. You'll always have that with just large amounts of data. And so you were able to record and log all of those things and then any additional notes that you may, that you may have had. And what this does is allows us to go back and really look at the impact and the influence of the program. It allows us to quickly identify anyone who had, who had support needs beyond getting to the polls. And it also let us know who to sort of remove from our list. So if it was a, a wrong number or a do not call, we can remove them from our system, right? If it's a hangup, then we can reach out to them via text and say, hey, sorry that we lost connection. However, we just wanna make sure you're gonna go out to the polls today. So this was us trying to figure out what our, our data mining and our data maintenance would, would look like as we were doing it, right? As we were actually engaging in the activity of getting out the vote. You no, know, especially in light of the pandemic, we're increasingly moving to doing things online. Does this change anything in terms of the stakes and the strategies of representation for the black community? And if so, what are the challenges and what maybe possibilities as a move to tech pose? It presents an opportunity to reach further and deeper into Black communities. There is considerable potential in Black communities with high populations of low propensity voters. And again, these are folks who aren't being engaged or even 
asked to participate in the democratic process. And so with data and with digital resources, it sort of sky's the limit and not just limited to, to the black community, any marginalized community you can, you can sort of delve into and engage in the political process. And so what that means is we can, we can really increase voter turnout. We can maximize voter turnout and not have it be an aspirational goal, but this can be a realized accomplishment. You know, I had a couple of months ago, Aaron Samuels, he's the COO of a media group called Gravity on my podcast. We talked about representation online. He's very critical of online media for failing to represent the Black community uh, online. I wonder if we could take that conversation and maybe pivot it toward the, the political and questions of representation. What are the political consequences, in your view, of that limited representation online, particularly as we're moving to a digital economy? The stakes are, are high. We are talking about the potential for representation, the potential for equity, the ability to sustain civil rights, maintain the constitution. This is what's at risk when we are talking about excluding or even when we're un unintentionally omitting groups from, from the political process. And in our non-digital stratosphere, we really don't have the right tools to combat that. And our digital resources and technology gives us tremendous power and capacity to, to mobilize and to target and to identify and to empower and to educate. And so, yeah, this is, this is what's at stake and this is how technology can bridge, can bridge that gap. I mean, maybe we can broaden the question out a little bit more. We're here at this pivotal moment where major decisions about how we may exist as a democracy coincide with major questions about how we use and move forward with technology, questions that have come to a head in a movie like The Social Dilemma, which makes the case that social media has impacted and polarized our democratic collective. And that questions that, that emerge in the wake of this kind of crisis of digital media, this crisis of increasing polarization, this divisiveness that's facilitated by the fact that we're now not interacting with one another. What, if anything, do you think is the connection between ethical technology and representation, and particularly democratic representation? I find that such to be such an interesting question to pose and, and one, I think, all of the organizers at, at Block Power have, we've been reflecting on and contemplating over, over the past few weeks and past couple of days. And honestly, I think it depends on how we are approaching what we consider ethical behavior, right? What are ethical maxims that we as a people can uphold 
that can guide everyday behavior and the lack of consensus around that will continue will allow this sort of dysfunctioning of our our political system or the polarized state of our political parties to perpetuate one of the things that we have experienced in a coronavirus world is the internet the webs the interwebs can be used for good and to be honest i think you see us for the first time using and leveraging the internet in the way that it was supposed to be used and leveraged we are working online remotely we are hosting virtual happy hours sending virtual birthday gifts we're having virtual dance parties lessons it, th this is the first time that we're actually we're taking a step back from i don't know the heavy use of of, of pornography and and mindless memes and we're actually leveraging this as a tool and i i think it's really up to us to to define some ethical maxims that we can uphold that we can then leverage technology to work towards so if we want to be a more equitable and inclusive republic we have the resources to do that technology hands down can support us in that role but is that really what what we want do we want a more informed and educated people we can do that but i really think that it it relies on how we are approaching this notion of ethics ethical behavior and morality because technology can take us anywhere we want to go we can advance and evolve as much as we want to and we can also devolve as much as we want to with the use of technology i want to talk a little bit about the ethical dimension of the two terms that come together in this podcast ethics and technology and as as we've been talking about here representation is an ethical concern it's at the heart of questions about equity. How do you view the relationship between equity and ethics? And what do you think? How would you define ethical technology? At first glance, I think of ethical technology as sort of leveraging technology to reach sort of our highest states of humanity, whatever that looks like for each person. And so if we're talking about reaching our highest levels of humanity, then that means, and we sort of talked about this a little earlier, not leaving anyone behind to ensuring that we all have sort of a base level of living standards that are acceptable uh, <laughs> and, and, and equal, right? Making sure that we all have access to similar resources, whether it's education, whether it's healthcare, whether it's financial backing. The funny thing is before Block Power, I was working with an association 
whose members provide broadband services to rural America. And it just was so eye-opening because I've lived in cities for the past 10 plus years. And to think that there's at least 30% of the U.S.'s landmass that has connectivity issues or maybe has no connectivity, it was astounding. And realizing that I am privileged in that way and had not ever been made to think that, hey, there are others who, who are lacking in this capacity, who don't have access to standard Wi-Fi or broadband. Why is that in 2020? And how as a society is that not something that is important to us? That is, to me, being in a city, sort of a base standard of living that I don't think that I should be privileged to, I think everyone should have access to that. And I will pick up on something that you just mentioned. I mean, to put a very a finer point on it, you know, I live in Oakland right now. And Oakland is and bears the history of racialized segregation in 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 institutional and infrastructural ways in the Bay Area. And this morning, I was complaining to my colleagues that it took about two hours to upload a PowerPoint. Now, why is that, that it takes two hours? Because companies, you know, ISPs like AT&T <laughs> will not service areas with the same kinds of bandwidth speeds, the same kind of upload speeds that they do in wealthier and whiter neighborhoods. It's a huge infrastructural legacy. These are deep uh, legacies and they perpetuate inequities because if you can't get the access to technology right now that you need to participate in the digital economy, it's a way of continuing that kind of marginalization and those kinds of inequities. It's the small frictions that stop you from getting the work done in a direct way that end up facilitating massive infrastructural inequalities. Just those small things, you know, if it's hard for you to access something, then you might not do it, right? You might you might not do it. If you can disenfranchise voters, you can keep them from engaging in that issue, right? One final question. Uh, I've avoided asking a specific question about Donald Trump because my hope is to limit the amount of airtime he claims. But I also think that our our country has a very specific problem with addressing its past of harms, racism, and the history of racism in this country in particular. And these past four years has been overall, I think, an objectively harmful time for people of color in America, particularly for Black Americans. And I think that actually it would be unjust and unethical not to talk about that. How are you thinking about these past four years? Are you optimistic about the next four years? And what, if anything, can the next generation of humanists and technologists do that would give us reasons to stay optimistic? Before I answer this question, I just have to state and remind everyone that Block Power is a, a nonpartisan organization. We simply are in support of people exercising their right to vote, however they're going to use that vote, right? And with that being said, what I can say is that it's really easy for me or for others to, to put the onus of outright discrimination and 
and support of white supremacy and black suppression on, on Donald Trump and sort of his, his rhetoric over the past four years. But in doing that, what that allows us as a people to do is avoid confronting the fact that this is the underbelly of the country that we live in. This isn't a, a Donald Trump problem. This is, a, this is an American United States problem that we need to confront. And so while he has brought a lot of this to the forefront and, and to the light and people expressing some of their views, we also need to engage in the tough dialogues as to why we're holding on to some of these lingering practices and thoughts and, and feelings, why we are still allowing systematic oppression to be a part of the fabric and the infrastructure of America today. Why aren't we electing representatives who are going to dismantle these oppressive systems, who aren't going to protect marginalized communities? I want us to be engaging in that dialogue today. And I think that with groups like Black Power, encouraging people to vote, I think that's one step, is getting people back into this political process. Because it's, you can't drink from the fire hose, right? So we're, we're walking people back, back to the polls. What going to the polls forces you to do is then look at what's going on in your neighborhood, what's going on locally. And then what that does is sparks your interest in what's happening on the national level. And then you start to connect dots. Oh, well, this decision impacts this vote, which impacts this decision. And here's what that looks like at the federal level. And here's what that looks like at the local level. And here's how that impacts myself and my family at the end of the day. And so because of that, here is what I think we should do. Hey, friend, did you see this? Did you know that so-and-so is running, running, running for this? Did you see that this is happening? And so you start to see conversations that don't just center around entertainment or the next 24 hours of my needs happening. You start to see us engaging in, in meaningful dialogue. And then we can start to confront the underbelly of of America, why does this persist? And how, through the power of our voice and our vote, can we address this systemic oppression and systemic racism? And much like we have yet to confront coronavirus, we will have to confront this pandemic of, of racism. Are you optimistic that in the next four years we might? And if so, what what keeps you optimistic? I am optimistic. Sometimes all we have to go on is, is hope. And if we don't have hope and we don't have faith, we ain't got much left. And so I am, I remain hopeful because there are folks like Black Power who are out there trying to engage folks who are engaged in the political process. I am hopeful for 
people like you, Deb, who are engaging folks in this dialogue of sort of humanity and technology and where technology meets ethics and how that intersects and challenging people to think about could we be broadening our understanding and our usage of technology? I am hopeful because people can no longer not see racism, things like police brutality and and systemic oppression. There's one thing that the pandemic did is it minimized all distractions, right? And you saw that with George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and brought everything to the forefront. You saw so you saw technology being leveraged to organize huge movements that swept the nation and not just the nation, but swept the globe. I went to uh, a protest in DC that was organized by a wonderful young lady who didn't live in DC. She came to DC specifically because she felt like she wasn't doing enough in her hometown. So she organized this march in DC via Facebook and we went to help pass out food and and water and hand sanitizer, PPE equipment. And several thousand people showed up to this thing. And so if that doesn't instill hope, I don't know what would. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. Love talking to you today.